to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I got to tell you something, people. A few years back, I went to a concert in Philadelphia. It was the uh, it was an 80s show. And I was the guest. I, I got invited by both past Cooper Talk guests, Michael Aston from Gene Loves Jezebel and Clive Farrington from When in Rome. And the other bands were past Cooper Talk guests, John Easdale, Dramarama, Annabelle Gwynn with uh, Bow Wow Wow, Nick Feldman with Wang Chung, Mike Score with the Flock of Seagulls. Now, the two other bands, Animotion and Naked Eyes, none of them are on my show, but that changes today for one of them because from Naked Eyes, I have Pete Byrne. How you doing, Pete? Hey, Steve, I'm doing very well. Thank you. I'm still fiddling with my computer, but uh, I-, I can hear you okay. Okay, that's good. Now, I got to ask you, you know, I, I saw you in the 80s show in Philly, and, and when you, and I know you have a show coming up at the Greek, an 80s show. No. But, but when you guys go on one of the 80s tours before, you know, the shutdown, would you all yeah. travel together like in a cool 80s bus, or would you all get there separately? Uh, no, that would be great. Sometimes we do. I did a tour uh, a few years ago and shared a bus with um, a bunch of, uh, just trying to think what it was. Oh, I know. It was, um, who was the, oh, it was the Go-Go's. Yeah, the Go-Go's and uh, a bunch of us. There was uh, Martha Davis and um, who else was there? Oh, oh, gosh. I don't know. There were a few of us anyway. And, and we all traveled on on one bus. Go-Go's had their own bus, obviously. And so that was the closest. And it was pretty good. It was pretty fun. Now, are you looking forward to these shows coming up? Because, you know, what I've, I've been to a few concerts since everything has shut down and started to open up. Right. And, and the, con- the the crowds, we're just hungry. You know, we're just loving it. How right. how much are you looking forward to getting on? I know you have the show at the Greek on the 3rd, I believe. Yes, this Friday coming, yeah. So how, 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 how excited are you for that? Oh, I mean, I am excited, yeah. I, I mean... Uh, we did a couple of shows about a month ago that were like, full-length shows, like 75 minutes. One of them was in Rocklin outside of Sacramento, and the other one was in um, Cedar Rapids. And I hadn't done a show in, well, whatever, whatever, it's nearly two years, right? <laughs> Certainly 18 months. And um, it was fantastic. I mean, they were full-length shows, so you really got to, uh, you know, like get, in, get in with the crowd and everything. Um, but the crowds were great. Um, we had a lot of fun, and um, I, I don't expect this weekend to be any different. I mean, we're, we're playing two shows this weekend. We're playing the Greek on Friday and uh, the Saratoga Mountain Winery on Saturday, which is a great venue near San Jose. Um, but, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, and uh, we'll see, see uh, you know, how it goes. I'm sure that will be great. People now, uh, like to say. Now, will you play, you have a new album out, The Sky's the Limit. Yeah. And will you will you play songs from that, or do you, are you going to say, okay, we're going to do these staples for our fans? How are you going to do your sets? Yeah, it, it, unfortunately, these are package shows, so you know we're not going to get that much time. I'm not sure exactly what we'll be doing, but we'll obviously do the hits. Uh, that's why people come. And uh, if I get a chance, I'll do some of the new stuff as well. Tell me about the new album. First of all, how how did you get the name? I, I believe I heard you tell Richard Blade a certain story, and I want I want to hear it from you. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I was I, I've been compiling this album, mixing it, and getting it ready for a couple of years. And during I guess nineteen twenty nineteen, 
I had foolishly, <laughs> in retrospect, foolishly told everybody that I've got this album coming out next year and it's going to be called Naked Eyes 2020. And the problem with that was, of course, once 2020 happened, nobody wanted to remember it anymore. 2020 <laughs> was a miserable year. So, so I'm, I'm thinking, I'm mixing the tracks and getting it ready for, you know, to be released. And I was just looking for a new title. And I remember this thing my little girl said to me when she was about five or six years old, Daddy, what does disguise the limit mean? And of course, I said, well, it's a pun, darling. It's really disguise the limit, uh, which is what she'd heard. But she figured it was called disguise the limit. And I remembered that. I've had it in the back of my mind for years. And I thought, I'm going to call it disguise the limit. Uh, and that, that's what happened. There was a simple, simple change. 2020 was no good anymore. So exactly. It is. Now, the album, uh, tell me about it. You know, I, I know I listened to it. It's got good tempo. I know the last song is uh, Forest of Nottingham. I liked it. It was a little bit slower. How, how do you decide, you know, how, first of all, how long did it take you to come up with this album? And how many songs did you have to put into the final version? Because how did you pick 10? Yeah, I had about 18, 18 to 20 songs that I could have uh, had on it. But uh, I had to, you know, I, I wanted to make the initial uh, production or the initial, the initial version vinyl. And uh, of course I grew up in the vinyl age. And so I knew that the fewer tracks, the better quality. So uh, I wanted it on the heavy gray, uh, you know, 180 gram, whatever it is, vinyl, uh, which is the best, I believe, uh, quality of vinyl. And, uh, and I thought, well, you know, in the old days we put 10 tracks on an album and that was mainly for the quality of sound which is what I was going for. So I cut it down to 10 songs. I probably could have got another one or even two maybe, but they'd have to be short songs. And I didn't want to over, over, you know, go over the sort of limit of uh, vinyl's capability, but it's because it sounds beautiful on vinyl. Um, so that was why I cut it down to 10 songs. And uh, most of them were recorded with uh, my friend, Neil Taylor, the guitarist from London. And, um, and James Terrace, uh, my keyboard player, who's, uh, who's a brilliant player and also uses analog synths and everything. So it sounds great. And that's why I was going for quality more than quantity. So I cut it down to 10 songs. And uh, so half of the album was with uh, Neil and James. And the other half was with uh, <coughs> a friend of mine, Charles Scott, who uh, 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 co-wrote and... Uh, help me uh, record and produce the other half of the song. So a couple of them are just me, of course. Ready, uh, although right now Ready has Neil playing guitar. Forrest and Nottingham, even, even that one, which is just me on an acoustic guitar, um, that has Neil playing guitar. So it's an amalgamation of, uh, you know, a, an album that I've been trying to put out for a couple of years and, you know, what I finally ended up with, the, you know, the uh, amalgamation of two kind of sessions, if you like. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased with it, actually. I think it turned out quite well. Now, why did it take you a long time? Did you have somewhat of writer's block, or did you have other things going on? Because you uh, know, I would think it's a big it's a big project, making an album. You know, when you think about it, it's, uh, a, it's an album. Right. Um, but in, in, in cases these days, people generally, you know, write an album. I suppose they always have. You write an album, and then you record it, release the album, and then you tour. It's 
it's what hasn't been like that. I've been doing a lot of touring, but you know, when I'm at home in Los Angeles, uh, you know, I'm writing, recording, so that's why I had a lot of material. Um, and I just put together, in, in you know, at the end because of COVID, it couldn't come out earlier, so I, you know, I, I, I whittled it down, so to speak, and uh, put together the best ten songs that I had. I think best ten recordings. Um, but there are a lot of other, other tracks from it, but maybe one day I'll put some of those out. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's just not the same anymore. It's not that, you know, album or, you know, writing album tour business that it used to be. So, you know, that's how it just uh, turned out in the end after the delay of COVID. Now, now, do you miss, I mean, you know, I've heard stories and I know when you're, when you guys became big, yeah, you know it's you're busy. You know you tour. People don't understand. They're whisking you in. You're touring. You're doing promo. You're doing this. Then the yeah. studio's like write the studio's write another album. Do you right. miss that? Was that sort of a rush, or do you like it now, where you can sit back and go, "I'm going to do what I want to do." Yeah, I, I don't miss it actually. I mean, because when we first uh, our first album was record. I mean, we'd already written all the songs, and so recording it, um, we went into Abbey Road in London and. And we spent about six months uh, recording, um, and so that was a it was a fantastic experience, obviously, and um, and it turned out quite well. Um, but then, because of our situation, we weren't a touring band. We couldn't uh, play our music live because there wasn't any. The technology wasn't available. There weren't any computers, for instance. There weren't uh, any sequences even. So we couldn't even just sequence synth parts. Rob had to play, uh, and and on um, the first Naked Eyes album, Rob played everything by hand. So, uh, and it was recorded old school onto two-inch tape, and you know Rob would play a part, and if he, you know, didn't it didn't go so well, he would have to drop in and do it. Same with my vocals. If I'm singing and I get to a part where you know it gets messed up, or I sing a bum note or something, we'd have to drop in. It was old school recording, analog recording, analog synthesizers. Um, so that was all very well, except then we got to the point where we've got these massive hit singles and the record company wants us to go and tour. There was no technology for us to, to do it. We actually tried to put a band together, but ultimately it sounded like uh, a bar band or a very good bar band, but it sounded like a band... Uh, uh, playing Naked Eyes songs. It didn't sound like Naked Eyes. So, uh, you know, we decided, well, we're not going to go ahead and do this. So the, the label, EMI, uh, said we should just go back in the studio and we should record the second album. And, you know, the timing just wasn't right for Naked Eyes to play live. So so that's what we did. We went back in, recorded the second album. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we, it didn't do as well as the first one. And it was a slight diversion in sound. We'd introduced guitars and live dramas and things like that. So uh, that was that. And then, you know, everything changed once, uh, you know, computers became able, you know, people had computers. I mean, we had a, a Fairlight, which did some of it, but it still wasn't enough to take it on tour, just a Fairlight, you know, because we used, you know, on the first album anyway, we had maybe eight to ten synths on every track. So it just wasn't possible. We couldn't uh, play uh, always something that would remind me of Promises, Promises live. 
the technology just wasn't there. So we sort of went straight into the next album and then, you know, just moved on from there. Now, how did you get into music? Did you grow up in a musically inclined family? Or what, uh, what, what, what drew you into this career that you've had? Well, I think basically it was just a, 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 a thing that happened to me. I just loved music as a child. Even when I was like three or four years old, I would sing to the radio. And, uh, you know, it just started like that. I later on got a guitar and tried to play that. But it wasn't very good because the guitar was a horrible, cheap thing. Um, which actually is a good point. Um, I have a couple of nieces and a, a nephew, and I've uh, bought them little guitars, but I've got them great Taylor baby guitars, which are scaled down. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So they're beautiful. So they've learned how to play the, a guitar on a good guitar. So if uh, you know, if anyone's listening and is thinking of buying a guitar for their kid, don't go to Target and buy some rubbish <laughs> guitar. Go and get a good one. And all the top companies make great scaled down. They're not children's guitars. They're scaled down. I have one I take on tour with me so I can take it on the bus or take it to the hotel room. And it's a beautiful little Taylor uh, baby guitar, it's called, I think. But it, it's not a kid's guitar. It's beautiful. But it's perfect for children. Small hands and, uh, you know, just quality. Uh, I think, you know, that, you know, you'll be doing them a favor. Those uh, cheap guitars are hopeless. Um, so, so anyway, a long way around of saying I have one of those. So I didn't really develop into a guitar player till I was at college and everyone played and we would have a group of us, half a dozen of us, and somebody would bring a guitar and I started to play and sing. And uh, and and my singing became, became uh, pretty good at that point. So, uh, you know, and, and I, you know, just developed from there, really. Went to the south of France, hitchhiked around, busked on the beaches of Saint-Tropez and Saint-Jean-Alupin, Nice, Cannes, and spent a summer down there busking. And it just occurred to me, this is what I, I want to do. I just, uh, you know, had this uh, thing, this natural ability, and people like my voice. So uh, that's what happened, really. Then I, I formed a few bands when I got back to England. And, uh, you know, eventually ending up meeting Rob Fisher and uh, forming Naked Eyes. No. And at that point... I stopped playing guitar because Rob was so great and had all these ideas about a synth band, which was brand new in those days. We were one of the you know first synth bands. It was uh, the Buggles, there was Human League, M. Uh, those are the only three I can think of. But you know, so we were one of the first synthesizer bands, two men, just a synth player and a singer, which was great in the studio because uh, you know that's all we needed. I did all my own harmonies. Rob played all the parts you know, on different synthesizers. And so it worked well until it came time to play live and then it didn't, didn't work at all. <laughs> I want to hear, I want to hear about the band Neon because that's like an all-star band. I mean, people, if you don't know, Neon was a band that also had the two gentlemen from Tears for Fears. How did that yeah. band come about? It came about because, uh, you know, as I say, we weren't playing live and uh, Rob and I, were, you know, had his publishing deal and, the, and they suggested we put a band together. I'd noticed this guitarist by the name of Neil Taylor, who was absolutely fantastic. So I asked him to play, and I'd seen uh, Graduate, which was an early form of Tears for Fears, and I saw Kurt playing bass, and I thought, he's great, he looks great, he play, plays great. So I asked Neil to, uh, I asked Kurt to join. So I had Neil and Kurt, and then I, I got this friend of mine, Manny Elias, to play drums, and then with Rob and myself, we had a band. So we went out and we played all over the West Country and pubs and 
clubs and you know small gigs just local local shows in bath and um and that was it and that, that was the band and then of course neil uh, had his three-piece rock band that he wanted to pursue so he left so we we uh, we thought well who are we going to get to play guitar and uh, obviously roland's name came up and uh, he joined us on guitar and we played uh, we did the same thing pubs and clubs little clubs um and uh, it was fun it was a great little band and uh uh you know ultimately of course we all had other things in mind um and uh Kurt and roland went off and uh started tears of fears and had a fantastic first album uh the hurting and rob and i got you know went back to our first uh, idea which was a two-man synth band so we started naked eyes and uh that's that's basically how it started now how did you get the publishing deal you said you had a publishing deal how did that uh, come about we it was just uh, it was part of our sort of mission statement when rob and i first got together the idea was because we were sick and tired of bands and we were fed up with you know that whole performance thing and we thought well why don't we just write songs and go and get a publishing deal we're thinking that's going to be dead easy right <laughs> so so we did we started writing songs and started making phone calls and we would get the train up to bath uh train up to london rather we were in bath and we would get the train on a monday morning or whatever and we'd go up to london spend a few days uh pretending we had meetings with people we would walk in and say we're here for a meeting and they'd say you're not in the book and we'd say well you know must have got mistaken or something and we eventually got in to see people we were pretty uh determined shall we say so uh, ultimately after a few weeks of doing this we started getting uh, offers from people we had you know half a dozen publishing deals on the table by the time we signed with uh, rondor which was a&M's publishers. We had EMI, Warner's, uh, quite a few actually, about half a dozen, maybe more uh, offers. And uh, but we ultimately ended up with Rundle, and um, that was it. They gave us some money. It meant meant we had we could buy better equipment, make better demos. Uh, you know, that was it. Now, when you formed Naked Eyes, did yeah. the publishing deals help you get a record deal, or was that something they didn't care no. about? No, it, we did care about it, and it didn't really work like that. We were we thought we would end up signing with A and M Records, um, but it never came about. And but we were still signed with the publishing, and they were the one who said we should put a band together. Uh, you know, because that's the normal way things work. You know, if you've got songwriters who are you know like Rob and I, he was a keyboard player and I'm a singer, you would basically put a band together. But that wasn't our sound. Our sound was. Sorry about that. Sorry. Uh, our sound was uh, just synth synthesizers. So we weren't like most bands of the day. You know, they'd have a keyboard player who played piano, Rhodes or Korg organ or something. That wasn't our style. We were in, in synthesizers. We were a synth band. So so that's what happened. But they, you know, so you should put a band together. So we went ahead and did it. And uh, as I say, I put, you know, Neon together with uh, Kurt Kurt Smith and uh, Neil Taylor, Manny Elias, and that was the you know the really neon. And then Roland joined when Neil left, but uh, it just wasn't wasn't to be. So you know that was it. So when we went back to just being a two man band, 
um, we, uh, you know, started uh, started recording the demos, uh, better quality ones, and uh, uh, we had a, a friend of mine actually who was, uh, you know, fortunate enough to have. Uh, he was quite wealthy, to be honest, and uh, he took our demos to New York, and. Uh, he went to a few record companies, and once again, we had a fantastic response uh, from Polydor, Warner's, uh, EMI. Uh, we ultimately signed with EMI, of course, and that was uh, that's uh, how it happened. It was just a question of never giving up, constantly going. In fact, Neil, Neil, uh, EMI had uh, turned us down a number of times in London, and uh, eventually they signed us because the American label wanted us. So it was kind of... Uh, ironic situation if you like now how did you end up choosing always something there to remind me was that was that your management company or how did that song come about that you recorded well, it came about when we were recording our sort of shall i say serious demos we were in a studio in bristol and we were recording you know every day for about a month and it was just a break in recording we we're in a pub or something and uh one of us suggested doing the cover just for fun just to get away from at the our you know, demos for a while. And uh, we came up with the idea of recording, and I loved all the girl singers from the 60s. Um, so we thought, well, why don't we cover a, one of the girl singers? And uh, that was the, one of the songs, Always Something. It was a big hit in England for a girl called uh, Sandy Shaw. It was Dion Warwick hit and, um, in, in the States. And, um, and so that's what happened. We, we did a demo of it. So it's part of the demos that went to, that were taken to New York. And uh, part of the tracks that got us our our, our record deal, um, so that you know that was it. We you know it was just making songs that we wanted to do, just writing and uh, recording songs we wanted, and and funnily enough, recording a, a cover that turned into a massive worldwide hit. Just a bit of luck, really. <laughs> now, when you have a, that massive hit under your belt. Yeah. How much more confidence do you have in the other songs that are coming off the album? Like, was Promises, Promises the follow-up to that? Yes. Okay, so did you think... Well, actually, actually, you know, I'm, uh, the actual sequence was because we, uh, you know, we were talking about what's going to be the first single, and in England, it was my decision to release Voices in My Head from my first album, which did incredibly well in the most random of places... In Peru, for instance, it was number one. And, and so when we eventually went down and toured in Peru a few years ago, it said, voices in my head, naked eyes, and small letters underneath it, with the posters and everything. <laughs> and the crowd went crazy when we played Voices in My Head. It was, you know, it had become such a big hit down there that, uh, you know, it kind of usurped even always something. But in, in America, they didn't want to release it. And... They wanted to release always something there to remind me. They were they were much smarter than I was about what should be the first single. So that's what happened. I mean, now, do you remember? Was, yeah. Do you remember the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio? I do. It was it was one of the demos from our, our sessions in Bristol, the ones prior to getting the record deal, and it was on a, a local radio station in Bath in England. And I walked into the newsagents to get a newspaper, and it was on the radio. I don't even know how it came about. 
because it wasn't available as a, as a record. It was, uh, you know, it was just one of our demos. Like, I don't know how it came about, but it was it was called Fortune and Fame, which was later, you know, on the on the first album, and uh, and it was wonderful. It was probably the the most exciting time, you know. So yeah. Now, how important were videos? And did you like? I talked to a lot of. Uh, a lot of uh, musicians who didn't like the video process, even though you needed them because MTV was huge. They said it cost the band too much money and it yeah. took all day. What was your experiences with your videos? My experience was fantastic. First of all, in my contract, we didn't pay for the videos. The videos were paid out of the promotional budget, which was paid by EMI. Um, so we didn't pay for our videos. And uh, MTV had just started and loved us. So that's basically how, you know, we were promoted. I mean, that's how it all happened, really. MTV for us was the thing, because as I, you know, as I've said many times, we, we couldn't perform as Naked Eyes because, you know, there wasn't the technology. So the videos were, you know, it for us, really. Now, all of a sudden the videos are on, and as you know, MTV yeah. played videos over and over. You probably get start to get recognized. How how did that? How did you adjust to that when all that started happening? Because you it's know, a fun, it's, 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 it's a big funny thing. process. The first our first experience of that you know situation was EMI called. You know, we were in Bath, which is a small city in England, and we're just writing and recording. The album you know was recorded and was ready to go. It hadn't been released, or or at least. I think always something had been uh, released as a, as a single around the world and had become number one in Portugal. And for some reason, and I, I, I seem to remember it was Duran Duran couldn't make a TV date. Something had happened. And so everything had been set up. So they called us and said, would you want to go to Portugal and, or Lisbon in Portugal and, uh, and do a TV date? So we did, said, yeah, of course. And so we went... And it was crazy. It was just like Beatlemania, you know, thousands of, you know, young girls at the airport screaming and all that business and bodyguards and God knows what and girls sneaking into the hotel, breaching the hotel and uh, hanging out and knocking on our doors and putting notes under the door. So this all happened and we thought, okay, you know, (laughs) we got a hit record in, in Lisbon, in Portugal. And this is what happens. I mean... And I guess as a musician, you kind of think that's a possibility. I mean, not really thinking it's going to happen, but you think, well, it is a possibility. And so when that happened to us, we just thought, man, this is great. So the the fact that it then took off in America, uh, we kind of felt, okay, this is, you know, this is real now. And we came out, we did promotion everywhere, as you said, you know, MTV. We did, you know, all the TV shows American Bandstand, Solid Gold, uh, you know, we were doing constant interviews. We would sit in a suite in a hotel and, you know, do it all day long, you know, one after the other. So we were just, and, uh, you know, we just got used to it. The first time I had the experience of being recognized was in a mall in Southern California. And I was with my a girlfriend at that time, she later became my wife, and we were just in a mall doing something, and suddenly this crowd of girls started getting bigger and bigger, and following us, <laughs> following me, I guess, around the mall, 
And at some point, I just, you know, they got close and everything. And I went over and I said, do I know you? And then, you know, they were all excited and wanted autographs and everything. But that was the first time it really, you know, really became that. After that, we were kind of really sort of well-known. So it, it didn't, you know, it didn't mean so much. I mean, when we were in New York, you know, we'd get noticed and everything. But we got used to it pretty quickly. Like I say, as it, when you, if you're in this business... Then you you know it's a possibility, and uh, uh, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword, of course, because you know you lose your privacy, but at the same time you have this fantastic you know um, thing that happens to you. Yeah. Now, good. now, when you came to America for you know when you guys were doing all the promo, was that your first time in America, and was it what you expected it to be? Um, it was the first time we came over was in 82 with my friend who had been uh, christened manager of the band. And he, uh, he and Rob and I came over and we brought our girlfriends and everything. And we were, this was in 82 before we signed the deal. And uh, New York was a wonderful place. I mean, I thought I was going to live in New York, actually. But uh, after a couple of years of, uh, of, do, of doing the promo and everything... I ended up wanting to live in California, so I did, and I've been here ever since. I love Los Angeles. It's, uh, you know, well, you've been here, you know what I'm talking about. It's great. Uh, it is great. Now, now, after your second album, the second album doesn't do as good. Why, yeah. why, why did you split? Well, as I say, it was impossible for us to tour. You know, we tried to put a band together, but it was literally like a bar band. A really great bar band, but literally like a bar band playing Naked Eyes songs. So it just wasn't good enough. Uh, we couldn't, we just couldn't do it. It, it was just, uh, you know, it didn't sound like Naked Eyes. It sounded like uh, like a bunch of people just, you know, playing Naked Eyes songs. So, so we we went back into writing, and it's, the label wanted us to record the second album, so we did, and and that kind of, you know, that process. You know, we were kind of ahead of the curve in many respects. You know, there were bands that could do that, that were more hybrid bands that had guitars and drums and bass, but we didn't. We were literally a synth band. All we used were synthesizers. So it was impossible. And uh, so, like I said, we went back to uh, recording and, um, you know, ultimately, you know, we just got apart. I, you know, I was ended up living in California doing sessions uh, Rob was in London doing sessions and we, and we just drifted apart really uh, the, the sort of you know the kind of synth band we were like Human League like uh, Talk Talk for instance you know the, the, the market had come and gone in many ways uh, so you know none of us could really uh, you know tour I don't know if the Human League toured if Human League toured but I know Talk Talk didn't really tour um, we couldn't so it became uh, until about 85 when they started bringing out synthesizers digital synths where there were presets where people who didn't, weren't really like Rob was a classically trained piano player so for him it was easy he could play all the parts which is what he did on the first album it was all played by hand uh, so you know it was uh, it was it was that was really he you know he was doing sessions in London he was happier in the studio and you know, I was happy doing what I was doing. I, you know, I sang with Stevie Wonder on "Part Time Lover," uh, Rita Coolidge on her album. Uh, 
Princess Stephanie from Monaco cut an album out here. I sang backgrounds with her. So I was having a pretty good time. Uh, how did how did Stevie Wonder, I mean, how'd that happen? Because for me, if I was a singer, that would be yeah. like the stepping into the Hall of Fame because Stevie yeah, Wonder's got really such a great was. voice. Yeah, it really was. I mean, Stevie is a legend, obviously. And I'd been, um, I worked with this producer in London before I came out to L.A. And uh, we hadn't even stayed in touch. But when I was in L.A., I met him, ran into him by accident in a bar. And, uh, you know, we hung out and he said, do you want to come in and record some stuff? He said, you know, uh, you know, Steve is away, he's out in the Far East or something. And so I said, yeah, sure. So uh, I started recording some of my new songs in, uh, in Wonderland, Stevie's studio. And uh, we, was that was happening. And, um, and then one evening I was sitting at home at the beach, sitting by the fire, watching television. And, uh, and I got a call. And uh, Gary said, uh, Stevie wants to know if you want to come down tonight and uh, do some backgrounds on, on a song for the album, for the in Square Circle, the album's called. Um, so I said, yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> Not too busy. And uh, so I did. I went, I went to Wonderland and I uh, got there around 11, 12 o'clock. And all the other singers, because it was a pack of us, there was uh, uh, Phil Bailey, Cy Rita, Luther Vandross, you know, a bunch of bunch of people, a couple of others I can't remember. But, uh, but it was a group of us, and we were there till, I guess, Stevie showed up around four in the morning, and, uh, and then we started recording in the backgrounds. So Part-Time Lover was uh, the song I sang with Stevie, so I'm very... I'm proud of that. I'm That's so that. awesome. And, you know, earlier you had mentioned about Abbey Road Studios that you recorded there. What is that like for being an English musician recording at a studio like that? I actually, when I, I was negotiating the deal with EMI, that was one of my stipulations. And, and I didn't know even if they were going to let us do it because most of the bands like us, brand new bands, you know, wouldn't be in, in you know, the place where the Beatles and Pink Floyd record. So, you know... But they did. They they said, "Okay, fine," and uh, <laughs> so we got to have it locked out. We twenty four seven, and we lived there. Basically, it was it was ridiculously fantastic. I can't even begin to tell you. Uh, we used the Beatles instruments, the Mellotron. We used the, the beautiful studios. Uh, we used the, the. We were actually most of the stuff we did in Studio Three, which was um, Pink Floyd Studio, and. Uh, you know, it, it was just glorious. Uh, couldn't couldn't be a better place to start, really. <laughs> now, you also recorded a solo album, and then later you yeah. came out with the a Naked Eyes album uh, in 2007, the following covers, and your solo album was A Real Illusion. What made yeah. you go from being in the solo and then well, going back to Naked Eyes? Yeah, I mean, the, the Real Illusion could have been called a Naked Eyes album. I mean, it wasn't long after Robert died. And I, and, I, and I just didn't want to record and, I, you know, I just didn't feel it was right. Um, so I just called it Pete Byrne. And then later on, the label said, you know, you should have called it Naked Eyes because, you know, it's a brand, right? And uh, you're the singer and you're still doing, you know, songs that sound like Naked Eyes. You should go ahead and do it. So that's what, I, that's what happened, basically. The, the, the real illusion should have been called Naked Eyes, but I didn't call it that. Uh, and then... The Naked Eyes album, Fumbling with the Covers, was an acoustic covers album, which could have been called a Pete Byrne album as well. So, whatever. I guess, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, you know, it's pretty much synonymous 
uh, you know, people are naked eyes. That's that's a you know, Rob Robert died. The uh, naked eyes album came out uh, just short of ten years after he died. Now, um, now, what what was the reason why you wanted to do the covers, and then how did you pick which covers you would do? Well, as I say, at that point, I you know. I was going through a lot of changes in terms of music. Um, and um, I was also like, you know, basically taking care of my children, coaching their soccer teams, living in Southern California. And with the ability to, to do that and, you know, make record in the evenings, that sort of thing. So I wasn't playing live. Uh, I didn't have a band. I was, you know, pretty much doing that. So uh, it wasn't until... Once again, I was asked to put a band together to to um, promote a, a compilation album. Actually, everything and more, and so I did. I put a compilation. I put a band together to, to promote that, and um, and that was it. Two thousand five. I played my first show for about twenty years, and uh, and I've been performing ever since. So, you know, I love playing live. I mean, Rob wasn't that keen on live shows, but because because of the way we recorded the technology, you know, he, he couldn't play all the parts, obviously. So, you know, it wasn't uh, so important to him. But once I started playing live again, I put a band together, technology has caught up with our music, and it was possible for me to go out and sound like Naked Eyes. So that's pretty much the story of, of how it happened. Well, you know, it's funny, the, you know, when I talked to Richard Blade about this, and I asked him about why... Why do you think the 80s has made such a big comeback? And it's funny because the 80s are blowing up everywhere. And I'm 57, so I was in college, high school and college in the 80s. And I lived the 80s. I had the hair. I had, you know, we all wanted to go to Le Mans and get clothes like Duran Duran or, or any of you English stars because you guys looked cool and the women loved you. And uh, the 80s have come back now. Why do you think that is? I think I think the, the, the main reason is that the songs... And the records were so good. They're very, it's very much a pop, uh, pop situation. I mean, it's like, as far as I'm concerned, the 60s were the greatest time in, in pop music. You know, from 63 through to 69, all the greatest records were made, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I think the 80s was that, uh, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, Rob and I were really songwriters who used synthesizers to make records. I mean, so many great records came out in the 80s. Uh, and a lot of them weren't, you know, from bands being able to tour. Uh, a lot of the, the best records were like The Buggles or Human League or, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, even Duran Duran, although they, did, they do have a guitarist, they still were like a synth-produced band and uh, a really great one as well. Um, so I don't know how they did it back then but you know as, as i know from experience there wasn't you know any way to produce a live show with synthesizers unless maybe they had other synth players on the on stage i don't know but uh the songs were great duran's songs were fantastic hunger like the wolf was killer uh you know there were so many great songs and, and great bands around in those days uh that's my opinion anyway i think you know, the 70s were great in many different respects, but it wasn't so condensed into a to a movement or a sound. There was all kinds of stuff going on in the 70s, right? Uh, Singer-songwriters, disco, uh, you know, funk, <laughs> you know? 
Motown still. Um, whereas the 80s was really synth pop, which developed into, well, I guess it stayed synth pop, but the bands just became more hybrid, I, I think. Um, so it's easy to say, you know, go to an 80s show, New Wave became a, th a thing. New Wave was the name. That's what we were called, New Wave or New Romantics. But, uh, you know, it was all about bands using synthesizers, uh, whether they, you know, like, uh, you know, Flock of Seagulls used uh, synthesizers in the sound, but they're more of a rock band, a rock pop band, if you like, uh, using synths. Uh, whereas Naked Eyes were a synthesizer band. Uh, we didn't even use guitars. But um, anyway, you know, I could now, go on for hours. But <laughs> now, what what is it like when you see people who bring their kids to the concert? I mean, is that just a great know. feeling to feel that you've touched generations? Uh, I love it. I've, I had one experience. I was playing an outdoor show somewhere and the front row had grannies and little kids and teenagers, you know, uh, just the whole gamut of people. It's just amazing. Uh, I love that aspect of music. I love the, it's what, you know, that's why people love the Beatles. They, they, everybody loved the Beatles, right? Oh, yeah. You know, so and, and the thing, thing is the 80s were a distillation of that same kind of thing. So many, so many great records, so many great songs. Um, so that's uh, you know that's why I think people love it so much, and, and it's it's just great to see people from all walks of life coming to the shows. One more final question. Yeah. Tell me about the song "Promises, Promises." Tell me about the formulation of it because everybody loves that song. I hear it on the radio. I always turn it up. Where did that song come from, and was it easy to write it? You know, that's funny. You should ask because. Uh, you know, it, it literally was uh, record, recorded, written uh, in in a very short space of time. One afternoon, I used to walk. I lived over the hill from Rob in Bath, and I used to walk over there every day where he had his little home studio set up, and I would make up stuff on the way. And that, that particular song, well, a lot of them, actually, I would make up, you know, lyrics on the way and things like that, especially if we were already involved in it. But Promises was just a song I started making up a melody as I walked over the hill. And when I got there, he, he immediately started playing chords to it. And uh, we wrote the song that afternoon. It was pretty much recorded, not recorded, but, you know, the demo was done. And uh, and the song was written that day. So that's an un very unusual. Uh, normally songs, you start it, you get the rough outline. Then the next day you'd work on it a bit more. Then you'd put it aside for a couple of weeks. Then you'd come back to it. Then you'd develop it a bit more. Um, but Promises was literally uh, straight straight away. Uh, we both knew it was something, but we didn't know what. And obviously it turned into, it turned into one of our biggest hits. So, yeah. How great. did you guys allocate the songwriting, lyrics, music? How did that work? 50-50, everything. So someone would write the lyrics... And some half the lyrics and then yeah i mean basically I, I wrote all the lyrics rob played all the instruments we worked together on the productions and uh uh and the melodies melodies was uh, definitely a collaboration but in in publishing music publishing songwriting it's literally melody uh you know melody and lyrics those those are the two parts of a song uh, all the rest is arrangement really but uh you know because synthesizers and rob's uh you know ability on a synthesizer was so important that's you know our songs i mean our version of a voice something that they remind me for instance is a separate entity from any other version 
but I mean everyone else. I mean people do cover our version, but generally speaking, they'll cover the early Dionoric version, which is a different melody, some different lyrics. It's a totally different arrangement. But um, yeah, the synthesizers were an incredible, um, incredible new toy for songwriters in in the eighties. I think that's what really sets it apart from you know what went before. Well, that's awesome, Pete. You know, I, w- I want to thank you for um, taking the time to talk to me. It's funny, I was looking through my Facebook messages to you, and it's been a while, and we finally got it done, which makes me happy. And I was glad. Thank you so much. I was glad because I saw you in Philly. And now the website is nakedeyesmusic.com, and they can find yeah. the album there. You know, you'll autograph it too, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, autographed album and CD now as well. So. And people go to the website, buy it, and buy the vinyl. Because, you know, vinyl, he's right. Vinyl's much cooler. Vinyl's great. So people, go check out uh, Pete. Go to his website at nakedeyesmusic.com. It has all the info. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 870 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.